0: Well, hey, everyone, this is Cameron here at my office again. Um, Got another short sermon for you. We're just going to jump right in. Um, I want to start with an illustration from a film I'm, I think I can safely assume not a ton of you have probably seen. It's a 1979 uh, Russian film from the Russian Orthodox filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky. Uh, It's called Stalker, Um, and it's sort of this, like, it's kind of shot in a in a really grounded way, but it's this sci-fi story uh, about basically this this area, uh, this piece of quarantined land called the Zone, and I won't get into the backstory of what what makes the Zone so special or how it came became the way that it is. But at the center of the Zone is a room called the Room, <laughs> and the Room uh, is basically this magical. Th- place where if anyone can get to it, and it's not easy to get to it, there's all kinds of like traps, and, and it's extremely dangerous to make your way through the zone to the room. But if you can get to the room, uh, it will grant you the deepest desire of your heart. Um, and so the film is basically about this writer and this professor who hire someone called a stalker, Who knows how to navigate through all the sort of death traps to get someone to the middle to the room Um, so they hire him to lead them through and it's their conversations on the way but uh, and there's so much more that that goes on in this film but kind of the climax of the movie they make it to the room and they're just outside the door and and they have this moment of realization that it's actually utterly unsafe for them to enter the room why Well, they realize that no matter what they say the deepest desire of their heart is, uh, the true desire of their heart will be something far darker and far more ugly. No matter what they confess with their lips, the room knows what's actually going on in their heart and it will grant it to them. And they they come to realize that uh, if they actually have the deepest desires of their hearts granted, it could be disastrous. It could be disastrous. And so uh, the three men decide to pack up and return back to their home. Um, And I've always found that image. I found that that climax of that movie to be so powerful and insightful about the human heart. Talk is cheap, the movie seems to be declaring. "and, And the human heart is deceitful. And what we say is often not the reality. You have to look elsewhere than what is stated to get to the heart. Uh, the movie seems to be saying and so uh, that theme is it, it's just just powerfully capture something that John has just been reiterating again and again for uh, this first sort of chapter and a half of the book of first John um, and it's back this week um, it was there last week, the week before it's back. Uh, John is going to take a break from this theme for a few weeks uh, of our study, and then he's going to come back to it again and again. So this won't be the last we've heard of it, but it will be the last for, for a few weeks here. Um, as we read, uh, John John begins this section here with this idea. Uh, he, he says, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And I just always want to point this out, that, that word beloved. His love for his readers is being powerfully declared here again. And, and lest we forget, because he's, he's got a hard word for his readers and a hard word for us today. But lest we forget that in the midst of this, um, his, his, his motivation is loving concern. Um, a loving word and a hard word can be the same word, you know. Um, So he says uh, it's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment you've had from the beginning, from when you first came to trust the gospel. When you first came to trust Jesus for your salvation. When you first heard his teachings, perhaps. You've had this. But verse 8, he says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. uh, Which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So whatever the command is that he's gonna give us here, in some sense it's old, it's not novel, but in some sense it is new. Um, In some sense there there is something new about it. And and I think it's important to note this language that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This is sort of eschatological or in times language. And uh, I like the way Raymond Brown puts this. He says, the newness of the command has to do with this eschatological or in or times quality of it. He says, quote, it's part of the realization that God's promises in the last times, or it's part of the realization of God's promises in the last times. In this way, it resembles the realities that Revelation calls new, a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new name for each Christian, a new song, in short, All things new. We live in this time between the times after Jesus' ascension, but awaiting his future return, where he could finally come and puts all things right. And in this last, these last days, as we're told they are in the Book of Acts, um, we've we've got this new commandment that functions in a new way as a foretaste of the world that is to come. Um, So perhaps that's what John has in mind by it by it being new. So what is the commandment? That's all the setup. Well, let's read verses 9 through 11. He says, Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So he never just says, here's the command, but it's, it's an implied one. The implied command is love your brother. Love your brother. But to get to the heart of what John's saying here, I wanna, I wanna try to answer three questions, and this will kinda be the main structure of, of the rest of our time. First question, what is love? Okay, love your brother, what is love? Number two, who is your brother? Number three, why love your brother specifically? Why the brother specifically? So let's take them in turn. Number one, what is love? It's really important that we don't assume that we know what love means for John uh, practically or for any of the biblical authors when we encounter the word love um, because we are all so easily, myself included, shaped by our culture's assumptions about love. Our, our, Our culture talks about love constantly. I mean, it's basically become a cliche for pastors to say what I'm about to say. So I feel a little bit self-conscious because I know, all right, let's roll our eyes. He's going to do the pastor thing where he says this thing we've all heard a million times, but I have to say it because it's true. Love is explored constantly in our music, in our TV, in our literature, in our film, whatever else. It's conceptualized as a political slogan um, with certain policy implications, it's used to describe how you feel about everything from what you had for breakfast today to your most intimate and personal and close relationships. And anytime you take a word and try to make it do all of that, it essentially becomes meaningless. And I'm afraid that's what's happened for our culture, that love, love has become an empty word fillable with basically anything. In modern English dictionaries are not great places to look to define biblical terminology, at least in the way that biblical authors understood them. So it's not much use to you to, um, you know, oh, well John said love. Let's go look it up in the dictionary. We're not going to get John's mind by going to Merriam-Webster, uh, but but we can get our culture's mind. And so Merriam-Webster's definitions of love are all basically emphasizing these ideas of attraction, of affection or attachment. Uh, essentially, they're emphasizing feelings uh, that can come and go, you know, as easily as a given mood can come and go. But for the people of God, for Christians, uh, going all the way back to our, our ancient brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago and, and, and uh, Israel before that, we've always believed that that love is one of God's central defining attributes. And that since he commands and enables his people to image him in the world, that's a part of our main function is why we exist. Um, that we are to love like him who is love's true source and definition. And so um, in a sense, if, if we want to understand love, we have to understand God and, and as Trinity, his loving relationship within himself, the three persons of the Trinity. And we have to understand his loving relationship with the people he's made and the world he's made. And that, to exhaust that, will take into eternity future. Um, it, it certainly it will take more than a few minutes here uh, as you're watching this video. Um, but nonetheless, if even if understanding love, because it requires understanding God, will take a limitless amount of time. Nonetheless, we can still get some powerful, powerful, sort of some simplified ideas or summary statements, several that come from the scriptures. So uh, John 13, 34 through 35, the words of Jesus, he says, a new commandment. Now, this has got to be in the back of John's mind here in 1 John. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. John 15, 12 through 13. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In some, you want to understand love. Look at Jesus. Jesus in both of these passages is pointing to himself as the example of what genuine love looks like. And how could he not? He is the God man. He's God translated transposed into human flesh and so do you want to understand the love of god and what it looks like when a human perfectly encapsulates it you look at jesus christ of course but there's other summary statements as well think of paul in 1 corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8 you've heard this at every wedding you've ever been to christian or not love is patient and kind Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. I like Jack Cottrell's definition of love. Um, an older theologian, he says, it's, it, He says, God's love is his self-giving affection for his image-bearing creatures and his unselfish concern for their well-being that leads him to act on their behalf for their happiness and welfare. And of course, we have to define happiness and welfare as God would define them, not as we might choose to define them for ourselves. Or I like Scott McKnight and his his really good book on community called A Fellowship of Difference, uh, where he argues that biblical, genuine biblical love involves rugged commitment to be with, so there's proximity and closeness and presence. Uh, rugged commitment to be for, so advocacy for for that person that, that you love. And rugged commitment unto or that has transformation in mind, conformity to Christ, uh, development into his likeness. All of which Jesus perfectly models toward us. I like that. We could say that love... Disadvantages oneself, sacrificially gives of oneself for the good of the other. Um, it, it can and does involve your feelings. This isn't to denigrate feelings of love or affection towards someone, but it goes far beyond them into commitment and action, um, even when the feelings fade. When the feelings fade, the commitment and the action is still there. Uh, For genuine love, for biblical love, for divine love. So that's love, quickly. (laughs) A quick, quick scattershot look at what love is, scripturally. So question two, who is your brother? And this is important. The New Testament does make a somewhat clean distinction between one's neighbor. So neighbor is translated from the Greek, uh, plesion, uh, as in love your neighbor as yourself. That's on one hand. And on the other hand, there's one's brother, translated from the Greek Adelphos, um, which is what's used here in 1 John. So I want to be very clear. Elsewhere in Scripture, we are commanded to love our neighbors, which is really anyone you find yourself in range of, essentially. It, it essentially means all of humanity. So Christians are commanded repeatedly to love the neighbor. So hear that. That's not not being questioned right now. But in this passage here in 1 John, he's focusing specifically on the love that's required for our Christian Adelphos, our Christian brothers. It, 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 the word means brothers, but it, it typically includes brothers and sisters, the whole family of God, fellow believers. And so, though we are commanded to extend love to everyone, everywhere, that's what's implied by neighbor. Here, John is specifically holding on to the importance of love for those in the church for disciples of Jesus, for fellow Christians. Okay, so that leads us to question number three which is why focus on the brothers and sisters specifically? Why get that focus? Well maybe it's because John knows that sometimes loving our Christian brothers and sisters uh, is the hardest task of love. Uh, maybe it's because he knows uh, when we know the task is representing Jesus in the world and we see our brothers and sisters falling short, it's very easy to get frustrated. It's very easy to have a short fuse. It's very easy to want to distance ourselves and separate ourselves from them. Maybe you've been feeling that recently. Um, but this this kind of brotherly relationship, love relationship, is what Jesus specifically emphasizes in John 13, 34 through 35. We just read that. Um, love one another one another as those in the Christian community, the community of Jesus. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So according to Jesus here in John 13, there is something, there's something about our love for fellow Christians or, or something about the love on display within Christ church between the people that make up Christ's church that demonstrates or, or incarnates or, or makes visible to the world what Jesus is like, what his love is like, and by implication, why it is good news for the world. And this is, this is really closely tied with the church's central purpose as, as a group of people um, representing what life is like in the kingdom of God. We are are kingdom outposts, like previewing to the world what it's going to be like when King Jesus comes in full one day to finally set up his his kingdom uh, in its fullness here in in, in the real world, in the new heavens and the new earth. So we are supposed to be a preview or a foretaste of that. Um, It's by the grace of God and the empowerment of the Spirit that, that we become in the language of of Paul, ambassadors for God, ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal, God making his appeal through us. It's our love for one another that allows us to do this with any kind of faithfulness, that we could become an embassy to the heavenly kingdom where Jesus reigns. That's our task. And if we don't love like him, we are failing in that task. We are giving a faulty picture To the world of what he's like, what his love's like, what his kingdom's like, and whether or not it is good news for the world. So it's a big, big task. And John's ultimate point here, to, to circle back to the beginning, is that talk is cheap. He's saying it's one thing to think or to even say that we are in the light. And for John, in the light means fellowship with God, abiding with God, closeness with God, intimacy with God. It's one thing to say it. If anyone says it, it's one thing. But a massive piece of proof about whether or not it is actually true that we are walking in the light is whether we love our brothers or sisters in Christ or the alternative, which is to hate them. And he doesn't really give a lot of middle ground between those two positions of loving the brother or hating the brother. And he says a life lived in the light is clearly marked or demonstrated by love for the brother. It's it's this picture of vision without stumbling or causing even others to stumble around in the darkness. But a life lived in darkness is marked by hatred, which leads to blindness and confusion and not knowing where you're going, fumbling around in the dark is how he characterizes it. So it matters. It matters deeply what we do to and for and with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, in our local church and across the world, the church universal. So I just want to ask to, to wrap up a couple of, of just really pragmatic questions uh, for us to reflect on this week as we go. And, and obviously we're trying to keep this tight and short, but I hope, I hope you will do the work to think through these things uh, over the coming week. Number one, am I in the habit of showing love to my brothers and sisters? Practically, tangibly. And am I close enough to any of God's people that I can contribute to their good, their growth, their flourishing? Do I allow myself to actually be inconvenienced or disadvantaged for their good? That's more than one question. That's a a series of questions, but we'll call that all number one. Number two, this one gets really interesting. What do the particular circumstances of our present moment mean for my obligation to love my brothers and sisters? What might love require of me specifically during the time of COVID-19? What preferences might I need to set aside to love my brothers and sisters well during COVID-19? What efforts might I need to make, uniquely during this weird time that we all hate, (laughs) to love the brother? What might love require of me specifically during a time of, of, of revealed racial inequality? Of political polarization? Of what seems to me to be just open hatred cutting every direction. Well, I just want to say this. I I sincerely believe that our partisan politics of our day really, really functions to limit our imaginations about uh, about what this could look like. Our partisan politics provides very narrow scripts for what love demands in this moment. It, it, it sort of is trying to siphon people uh, to one side or the other and say that you must ascribe to every single proposition, every single policy proposal, every single viewpoint on events, either on the left side over here or on the right side over here. And if you don't fully subscribe with all of these, you're sort of out of step and you don't get it and you don't understand. You're probably a bad person. You're probably an idiot or whatever else. Um, and that's not healthy for us. <laughs> that's not healthy for us. And it raises the question, what does a fully-orbed answer, a fully-orbed faithfulness to Jesus look like that, that could confound our friends and our families and even our enemies um, on both the left side of us and the right side of us as we try to put our love into action in a way that's in step with Jesus, who, who says very clearly, his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is going to come into contrast with any set of values and propositions in their whole, in their fullness, that the world tries to put forward from either side. So what does faithfulness look like to Jesus in a way that's in step with his otherworldly kingdom that's not ever going to sit fully comfortably with the kingdoms that are being erected around us right now? Um, We have to try to answer these questions. We have to answer them intentionally or they'll be answered for us by our culture and by our world and by our talking heads on our TV and by our politicians and whatever else. We have to try to answer these questions with our prayer lives engaged and with our Bibles open and in community, unafraid to actually have these conversations and to talk and to disagree and to confess and repent and allow our minds to be changed um, and to in all of it learn to look a little more like Jesus tomorrow tomorrow. we did yesterday that's what we have to be doing right now we have to be allowing our minds to be renewed daily in him and by him and through him and for him um, that we might be able to love genuinely and sincerely our brothers and sisters in Christ and as a parting word here as much as we need to feel the full weight of the obligation that John is putting forward to us, um, and it is a heavy one. It's It's a bold thing he states, that if we say we love God, but we hate our brothers, we are in darkness. We have to let that hit us, but at the same time, we can't be afraid to fail or to fall short, because these words must always be set next to the reality that Jesus has already shared with us in this very letter, that if anyone does sin, And they will. You will and I will. If anyone does forget to love. If anyone does begin to hate. The brother. Nonetheless we have an advocate. With the father. Jesus Christ the righteous. The propitiation. The atoning sacrifice for our sins. His loving Grace is always there for you and for me, even at the moment of our deepest failure. And as we talk about what love is and the obligation, how to do it well and all this, if you are just feeling flooded with guilt and shame because you know that you failed that, there's grace for you in Christ, who is your advocate with the Father, who has provided forgiveness for your sins and not just for your sins, but for the sins of the whole world, anyone who would trust In him and receive that forgiveness Um, so may we strive to show that same love and grace may it motivate us when we taste it when we need that grace and we get it from him may that just turn right back around into motivation to show that love and grace to others first our brothers and sisters here in the church that we might look like his community in the ways that matter and then to the world to our neighbors beyond May his grace and love be our motivation. Not fear of failure, not guilt, not shame, but the fact that he has already loved us to such a degree that we can't help but extend that to others. Amen, Door of Hope Northeast. All right, well, I love you all. Um, May we, by the spirit of God, put this into practice this week. All right, love you all.